0: All right, guys. Today I've got a fantastic guest uh, with us, uh, Dr. Bill Warner, who has become an expert on Islamic doctrines. He'll tell us all about it. Hey, Bill, how are you doing? Good to see you again.
1: I'm doing great. Glad to see you again, too.
0: Oh, great. Thanks for, for doing the show. Uh, so I thought as a, as a first step in terms of sort of contextualizing who you are, uh, you know, you're a professor, you were a professor of physics, you have a PhD in mathematics and in physics. So you certainly are trained in the scientific method. Uh, what led you from that career to now the endeavors that you're involved in today?
1: Well, my study of Islam, I'm a 75-year-old man, and I started my study of Islam when I was age 30. Uh, I became interested in Sufism, mystical Islam. And so I studied mystical Islam. I went to Sufi dances, did Zikr, uh, listened to Pirvilayat Khan, and... Uh, But I compare Sufism to a marble palace that has a locked door that goes down to the basement and there's something smelling in the basement that no one wants to talk about and you don't have a key to the door. So I drifted away from that because there were some uh, dark elements of now what I would now call jihad, but there were just, I didn't feel that they were square in dealing with the issues. And so then my second phase of study of Islam came as a college professor. Uh, I had many Muslim students and There was a subtle difference between them and me, and I don't mean because they were foreign. For instance, I had students from Africa who were Christian, and I didn't feel this subtle separation. So I decided, uh, as a scientist, I always like to study root causes. And so I uh, started studying the Islam again. I read the Quran this time cover to cover, and then I read the biography of Muhammad, and this was very sobering. So uh, I, when 9-11 happened, my phone rang off the wall with people saying things like, what's going on to one? Yeah. There were some who said, man, you said something was going to happen. How did you know? I read the playbook. Right. When Osama bin Laden called America to Islam, I went, "Woo, that's a dangerous right. call because I knew from my study of Islam that Muhammad called his, his opponents to Islam before he attacked them. Right. So after 9-11, I was like, I live in a nation that doesn't have no Sikh, from Hindu, from Buddhist, from nothing, and so I decided that I would introduce the world to Islam and that I would do so by making its primary doctrine rational, so that it could be understood. So,
0: you mentioned at one point one of the uh, Islamic holy texts that people don't necessarily think of when they're thinking of Islam. People, of course know of the Qur'an, but you talk about, of course, the trilogy of holy books. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you briefly uh, mention each of these to some of the folks who may not be very familiar with these ideas?
1: Well, first we need to understand why we have to look at these, uh, what I'll call, auxiliary texts, although they turn out to be foundational. If you're hip to Islam and you read the Qur'an, you go, wait a minute, there's not in this book to book, could be a Muslim. It doesn't tell you to pray five times a day. It doesn't tell you how to pray. It doesn't tell you much of anything about how to support the five pillars. As a matter of fact, oddly enough, the Shahada is not in the Quran. Now, you can piece it together, but there is nothing like that. So, you look closely, however, and you'll count 91 verses which say that every Muslim is to follow the perfect pattern and example of Muhammad, the Sunnah of Muhammad. Well, where do we get the Sunnah of Muhammad? We get it in his biography, the Sirah, a large work in fine print and very difficult English. And then we get it in the Hadith, which are his traditions. So now you have all of Muhammad in the Sirah and the Hadith, and then you have all of Allah. So we have Quran, Sirah, Hadith, what I call the trilogy. You then hold, and this is very important, because for most people Islam is like this boundless jungle of like who can sort it all out. No, 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 no. You can hold it in one hand. So we have circumscribed the doctrine, which is important to know. We're not leaving anything out. Got you. So uh, one of the things that you
0: talk about when you uh, discuss Islam are what you know, often to sort of the layperson appear to be contradictions, right? Uh, It says A and it says not A. And then people say, well, how could that be? And then, of course, you mentioned, and of course others have, this idea of dualistic logic in Islam, which also links back to a very important concept of abrogation. So if I say, be nice to your neighbors, and then later I say, don't be nice to your neighbors, how do we reconcile these
1: ideas in Islam? Most people make the inherent mistake of assuming that Islam is just like us. So when you see contradictions, you ask the Aristotelian question, well, which one's the right one? Because at least one of them has to be wrong if they contradict each other. This is where uh, my study in physics was in quantum physics. And so I was used to the idea of oh, dualism. Right. And so all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, this is dualism, doctrinal dualism. So you, as a matter of fact, almost everything you can study in Islam has two answers, and this was noted even in the days of Muhammad, except they expressed it this way. In, Medin, in Mecca, they said, Muhammad, last year you said this, this year you say that, those two things contradict. What are we supposed to believe here? And now we're touching on abrogation, and there are three verses in the Quran which say that Allah can do basically as he wishes, and he can replace what was good with something that is better. Right. Now, listen carefully to what that said. Something that is weak with something that is stronger. It does not say that the initial one is wrong. Right. So, therefore, Islam is the religion of peace. Yes, that's true. Islam is the politics of jihad and torture and war. Yes, that's true. Well, wait a minute. They don't line up. Right. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but does the,
0: does in, in abrogation, the fact that the later one, temporarily speaking, well, is later, does that in any way then render the earlier verse that was contradictory null and void. So if I say no compulsion in religion in the Meccan period, and then I say something that is contrary to that in the Medinan period, can I throw out the Meccan statement? Or is it still valid under certain conditions?
1: Allah can't tell a lie. So it's it's very useful. It's like having a sink with hot water and cold water. You want cold? You got it. You want hot? You got it. So the earlier one is not wrong, because Allah couldn't be wrong it's just he's giving you something that is better right and so we'll go with So the- this is dualism got it so got it. when you when your muslim neighbor says oh islam is a religion of peace he's half right
0: right but we right. need the whole truth got it uh well i think the the issue of abrogation is one that uh uh, Ayan Hersey Ali, whom I, I'm imagining, are you familiar with who she is? Ayan oh, Hersey? Of, of course. What yes. a wonderful woman. Yes. Uh, in her latest book, I mean, she, I'm not sure if she uses the term abrogation, but she probably does, but she talks about, you know, Meccan Muslims versus Medinan Muslim, precisely because she recognizes that doctrinally speaking, uh, Muhammad in the earlier period was actually preaching from a position of peace and you know plurality and tolerance but of course he attracted i don't know the i don't remember the exact number maybe 150 followers in, in a profoundly uh, dedicated time period was it 8 years or 13 years what he was
1: preached it? this is the summary of Muhammad's life he preached the religion of Islam for 13 years and garnered 150 followers exactly he then went to medina at the insistence of the meccans they, they basically ran him out of town. Right. Uh, and there he became a politician and a jihadist. And I'm not making this up. I mean, it is clearly written in this way in the Sira, the life of Muhammad. And now what's important is he averaged an event of jihad every week, for, no, every month for the last nine years of his life. Right. So his... his- well, he was overwhelmingly successful. Right. So his...
0: Uh, as somebody who studies persuasion, uh, as a consumer and evolutionary psychologist, uh, he became a lot more persuasive when he changed his persuasive, persuasion tactics. 150 customers the first few years, and hundreds of thousands very quickly Look, in the second period, right?
1: To use your term, it was absolute market saturation. <laughs> Every Arab became a Muslim. Right, right. So he found a plan. that worked. And we need to understand this, that if Muhammad had not turned to jihad, we wouldn't be holding this conversation because Islam would not have existed. Right. He, when he died, using he would have, there would have been fewer than four hundred Muslims when he died, right. and he wouldn't have, so it wouldn't have existed. It was jihad that made him successful. It was politics that made him successful. Well,
0: I, I've I've used uh, the following uh, biological analogy when describing uh, the spread of various religious memoplex, Right, there's a term that Richard Dawkins introduced in his 1976 book called The Selfish Gene, where he talks about a meme, right? A meme is the cultural analog of a gene. So in the same way that genes spread through populations, memes infect brains. Memoplexes are a collection of memes. So religion is a memoplex. Now, why is it that Judaism is a highly non-viral memoplex, whereas Islam is? And I argue, and I think others have as well, that there are specific doctrinal content within Islam that permits for its, you know, capacity to infect, right, to to spread, Uh, right? So, for example, the fact that you are, it's very easy to enter the religion, right? You just have to say the shahada, boom, you're in. The fact that you then can't leave the religion, uh, the fact that uh, there is polygyny, right? A man can marry four women, Uh, you know, every possible mechanism within Islam is there to promote its spread whereas in judaism it's pretty much the exact opposite you want to convert to judaism you have to jump through a million hoops by the time that you go through these hoops most people say oh screw this i don't want to be a jew anymore Uh, (laughs) so i think i think that it's i mean so forgetting about the fact that it was spread in many
1: places by the sword just the doctrines support its spread correct oh it does uh, how long will jihad be waged until every mouth proclaims the unity of Allah? Right. So, and then the Quran, of course, is considered to be a universal doctrine, document that applies to everyone. And that, so it has a stated goal of world rule. I mean, and they're very clear about this. Uh, this is not subtle.
0: And actually, I've, I've, I've uh, some people when they say, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. I mean, again, in a, in a, In a Machiavellian sense, that's true because you talk about, you know, the world has to be united under the uh, flag of Allah, at which point uh, peace will reign. And hence, we are striving towards peace. And so in in that very limited meaning of the term, it is true that it is a religion of peace.
1: It is. Once you accept the Sharia and whatever terms those are, you can either accept it as a believer or as a Demi. But once you do that, you have peace. So it is the religion of peace. It's just that the ticket price is quite high.
0: Maybe, maybe you could explain uh, uh, a term that you just used, which is a very, very important concept that of a dhimmi.
1: Please go ahead. Ah, the dimmi. dhimmi. D right. H I M M I. Right. I always amuse myself by telling people in the audience, now, I'm going to teach you a little Arabic, but it would be very painful. Painless, rather. Right. <laughs> oh, actually, when you learn what a dhimmi is, Dhimmi is a concept that everyone should know. It is uh, basically an agreement to a contract. And the contract is, I do not accept Allah. I do not accept Muhammad. But I will live within the Sharia. That is, the Sharia will govern the marketplace of ideas, all the exteriors. I can practice my religion. But I must subjugate myself to the Sharia. And I have to pay a tax called the jizya. And uh, so if you do these things, and by the way, Islamic State has stated, you know, Pay the jizya. Now there's an interesting thing that about the demi, which most people skip over. You can be a slave under Islam, but a demi has a peculiar quality. The demi must be humiliated. Right.
0: So must you, be ins- you, you must remind him of his subjugated place.
1: Yes. So therefore, in many cases, the demi to pay the jizya has to kneel down low, hand him the money, and then he slapped or his bull his Beard is pulled. Right. So the and the the Demi is also humiliated by clothing requirements. They can't.
0: Oh, There's your phone.
1: The Demi is humiliated by peculiar clothing requirements. They can't carry weapons. They can ride a donkey, but not a horse. Right. So the Demi has to be humiliated. So this is. And by the way, let me explain something about the spread of Islam. Most people say, well, convert or die. no. You must merely accept the Sharia. But being a dimi produces a Muslim over a long enough period of time. Let's take the country of Turkey. It used to be Anatolia, Asia Minor. It was a Greek Byzantine country, and it was all Christian. And now then it's... Islam nine,
0: yeah, go ahead. Sorry, anyway.
1: Islam invaded. Now it's 99.7% right. Muslim. This did not happen under convert or die. This happened under being a dimi. Because once you're humiliated on a, when... When, when people throw rocks at your children, when your wife is raped and you can't testify in court against the rapist, people, the, the humiliation of it all just grinds them down. And so it's just easier to pick up and go down to the mosque, repeat the Shahada, and now then you have money, you have power, because as a Demi, you can't rule over any non-Muslim or any over any Muslim. Okay. So the Demi status is one of the great tragedies of our Western knowledge of Islam is that we haven't studied the Dhimmi. There is a wonderful woman, Bat-Yor, yes. who taught the world. She is a remarkable, she is, one of the brightest days in my life was when I got an email from her and she said, you, you understand. the second
0: brightest day, the, most bright, the brightest day was when I sent you an email.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> but anyway, so, because she was, we have to understand why, look, you're an intellectual, I'm an intellectual and all intellectuals must ask themselves the question. Why have intellectuals refused to study the true nature of Islam? Why, don't we, why, is, why are you and I so rare? Do you have an answer for that? I do not, except we seem to be afraid to know. Well, I, think, a, I think it is a
0: bit that. I think, you know, and I've, I've talked about this. I think what happens in academia is, well, in, what, what's happened, I think, in general in the West is that uh, it's been infected by several uh, frameworks that have, uh, if you like parasitize our ability to reason and to survive, right? So for example, postmodernism says, uh, you know, everything is relative, who are we to judge? Uh, cultural relativism builds on that. Moral relativism builds on that. Political correctness uh, builds on that. So you take all of these various factors, and if you like, it beheads the intellectual metaphorically from, having, from using his or her tools of reasoning because they are so afraid to say something that would cause somebody to accuse them of being a bigot, a racist, of Islamophobe, and so I see it. I mean, you're you're no longer in academia, but I'm I'm entrenched right in the thick of things. It is simply bewildering to see how reticent most academics are to ever utter a single word that even questions Islam. I mean, I'm not talking about frontal you know, vitriol against Islam, I'm talking even doubting, questioning, linking a particular terrorist act to Islam, that's how tentative they are. Now clearly they're not idiots, clearly they're well-educated folks, but they've been sold uh, this parasite that basically says, if you criticize Islam, you're a hateful bigot, and they've convinced themselves that it's true, therefore they become, they have no longer any intellectual weapons to fight the battle of
1: ideas. This, by the way, is we see the perfect fusion of the left and Islam. Right. Because the left are the outriders of Islam. Right. I, this is speculation, but I think the left sees themselves as the hammer and Islam as the anvil. And between them two, they have a common desire to destroy our civilization and replace it with a utopian one. Yeah. And by the way, Islam is a utopian vision. because. They don't promise you misery. They promise you paradise. Right. I, mean, they, I mean, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Everyone has its place in society. Women are in their right place. And so it, uh-huh. they sell a utopia. And the, the left has simply bought into the idea that the society we have is not worth preserving.
0: Right. Uh, now, going back to uh, when you talk about dimmies, I want to uh, you know, clarify something. Uh, the dimmie status is only afforded to people of the book. So if you happen to be a polytheist, if you happen to be an avowed non-believer, you're out of luck, uh, in which case we got problems for you. Now, only if you are part of sort of the Abrahamic, uh, and I think maybe Zoroastrians, if I'm not mistaken, but certainly Christians and Jews, people of the book, could potentially be afforded this dimmi status, correct?
1: Well, you're correct in theory, but however, when Islam started attacking the Hindus, they suddenly had a problem. These were not people of the book, and yet they had vast wealth, and they, the Muslim overlords needed people to work and produce. Genghis Khan made a discovery that if you kill every citizen of the of the city you attack, after a while, all you have on is wasteland. Right. So you don't want to kill everybody. So they had to make special, uh, they had to stretch the doctrine a to, right. to get the Hindu in because they needed them. So, uh, but anyway, so, so basically so the, so the Demi status was, so what, I'm sorry, go ahead. uh, one of the seductions that Islam produces in the, the, the South is more religious than the rest of the United States. And so what the Muslim comes and tells the Christian and the Jew is, oh, we're all members of the family of Abraham. We all worship the same God. Well, actually you don't. Right. But it seduces. It is, uh. But this paralysis of the mind reminds me of the original universities, you know, were centers of indoctrination. They were not considered to be, it wasn't about critical thought at all. Right. There's a famous story, I don't know if it's true or not, in which the discussion is between Galen and Aristotle as to how many teeth a horse has. Galen said one number, uh, Aristotle another. Now, the rules of the game were this. The most prestigious person was right. So Aristotle was better than Galen, so therefore his number is right. Now, one of the students goes out into the courtyard, opens up a horse's mouth tied there, and comes back and says, there's this many teeth in the horse's mouth. The professor beat the student and the other students mocked him. And so, therefore, we see the same thing in the universities today. Critical thought, fact-based analysis is simply, I gave a talk at Vanderbilt University on statistical analysis of Islamic text. A neutral term, a neutral discussion. I do things like 51% of this, da-da-da-da-da. We're
0: going to talk about that, by
1: the way, but go on. Okay. But anyway, when my talk was over, a man stood up in the back of the room and started screaming at me, pointing his finger and screaming at me, you're an idiot, you know nothing about Islam, you've insulted years of my work, you should never be allowed even on a campus, much less to speak to a campus, and then he started looping. You're saying the same thing over and over and over again. That was the head of the Islamic Studies Department. (laughs) Right. Right, there you Screaming, go. Screaming, foam flecked. Right. And he, now what did he do? He said that I was a bigot and a hater, and actually said I was a racist as well. Where did they get the racism thing? Right. And uh, because this guy was as white as I am. So, but uh, anyway, no, there's no room for critical thought anymore in the universities. Let's.
0: I'm sorry, I want to bring in, sorry, finish your point and I'll, I'll.
1: But what I'm saying is the death of critical thought in our universities is the death of our civilization. Yes.
0: Absolutely. Uh, you, you mentioned what you refer to as statistical Islam. Let me, so I would call it a content analytic approach, and let me sort of give an introduction to this. So in my own work, so in, in a, several of my books, I talk about uh, fossils of the human mind. Uh, so if you want to study uh, aspects of human nature, uh, you know, a paleontologist, if he wants to study the evolutionary history of a species, uh, or related species goes out into the field and using skeletal remains or, or fossils, uh, he, he or she can reconstruct the phylogenetic history of a species. Now, of course, human brains don't fossilize, but what does fossilize are the cultural products that are left behind by human brains. So you were mentioning earlier, Aristotle and uh, Galen. Well, I can go back to an ancient Greek tragedy written 2,500 years ago and study its contents and demonstrate that the things that this guy was talking about are exactly the things that you and I are facing in Tennessee and in Montreal. It's sibling rivalry, it's sexual jealousy, it's paternity uncertainty, it's parent-child offspring, it's intra-sexual male-male rivalry. It's all the juicy stuff that, <laughs> that makes our human nature. And so I argue that you could study these cultural products, song lyrics literary narratives, uh, movie plot lines, religious narratives, because they will tell us some profound things about human nature because these cultural products come from many different cultures across many different eras. And so I was very excited when I saw you applying what I would call a content analytic approach, studying the content of a stimulus. You use exactly that approach, which you call statistical Islam in your work This is, I think, some of the beefy part, of our discussion. So please go into detail to explain
1: what it is that you do with that particular initiative. Well, first off, I'm a scientist. What do scientists like to do? We like to measure things. And we also like to take chaos and sort it all out until now it becomes nice, orderly. So we have a bit of an accountant in us, if you will. The other thing a scientist is fond of is precise naming. Right. An awful lot of discussions turn out to be meaningless because they, no one has precisely defined the terms. So what I wanted to do was to bring the sorry, to the study of Islam. And the reason I wanted to do this was, is that I realized, first off, I needed to do the simplification of the material. Let me explain something to you. Upon reading the Quran, it is very clear to me that the book has been cooked. That is, it has been made deliberately hard to understand. And so that was my first thing I want to do is to sort things out. So anyway, I also wanted you, as you read the book, you become impressed by how much time is spent on certain issues. Let's talk about the J word, jihad. Now there are two Qur'ans. This is no big news. Every Qur'anic scholar agrees there's the early Qur'an in Mecca and the later Qur'an in Medina. Now then, if we, so the first thing we need to do when we're studying our Qur'an is break it into its two parts. All right. Now, if you do this, you start studying what you call content analysis, you discover some very interesting things. In Mecca, there is no jihad. But in Medina, 24% of the Medinan Quran is written about jihad. Now, whatever else you may say, all of a sudden we'll have to say that, you know, it was not important in Mecca, and it was really overwhelmingly important in Medina. And the same is true with, for instance, other things which are so contradictory the Quran's attitude towards Jews. At first, Muhammad is practically a Jew himself because Gabriel was the angel talking to him, we spoke with Moses, we spoke with David, da-da-da-da-da. So the Jews are very favorably treated in Mecca until the 13th year. Now you see in Mecca, there weren't many Jews. So in Medina, there were a lot. So when Muhammad goes to Medina and portrays himself as the prophet of the same God as the Jews, the Jews look at him and go, Sorry. Think so. No, 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 no. You may be a prophet, but you're not our kind of prophet. Well, no one told Muhammad no and succeeded at it. So two years later, Medina was Juden So you'll notice here as I'm talking to you, I'm talking numbers, 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 numbers. So when I assert things about jihad, I now have facts, 24%. Now, whatever you want to make of that, you can. But so first off, as a scientist, I simply wanted to measure things so that I could make intellectual points, because I think that the understanding of Islam is the most important thing we can do today. Now, let me give you one more thing about my statistics. The thing that I was struck with as I'm reading it, you see, I've studied, for instance, I studied Torah at the Orthodox synagogue. I've studied Buddhism, I've studied Hinduism, and what I've always done, I studied with a teacher in that school as well. So that's the reason I went to study Torah at the Orthodox synagogue, and Rabbi Saul taught the class. So we want to study the original material, and I've now lost my train of thought. Oh, ah, yes, I'm forgetting. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> anyway, so one of the things that was struck with me was reading how much of this material was about me.
0: Right, you my, as the you as the Kafir, you mean?
1: Yes. Yes. And so I'm like, this is bizarre because when you read Buddhist sutras, you read about how to be a Buddhist. You know the the Shakyamuni Gautama was not going on and on and on and on and on about the non-Buddhist. Right. He was talking about how to be a Buddhist. So I said, okay, let's take Quran, Sirah Hadith, and let's take out the part to the Kafir, the unbeliever, and let's deal with the part that's left with the, for the believer. When you add them all up, 51% of the doctrine found in Quran, Sirah Hadith is about me and you.
0: Right. This is odd. And of that part... How much of it is favorable towards the kuffar, and how much is unfavorable?
1: 100%. It's all bad. So now then, so I coined this term, political Islam, because let me assure you, I'm involved in the Quran, and I am not a Muslim. So therefore, I say these claims are political in nature. That is, I should live under the Sharia. That's a political demand that my constitution needs to be replaced. That's a political demand. When those people leaped out of the World Trade Towers on September 11th, they were not feeling like they were participating in a religious ritual. When you put bombs into a, when you put guided weapons into a towel building, that is a political action. So I therefore coined the term political Islam because growing up in the rural south, which is very religious, I realized we will never defeat Islam as a religion. We must defeat it as a political system.
0: So what happens when people hit you with some of the sort of uh, traditional apologetics, uh, you know, uh, you're misinterpreting, you're misunderstanding, you're not contextualizing properly. So each of these, you know,
1: oft-repeated uh, rebuttals,
0: how do you, is there, is there a way to singularly
1: tackle all of them so that
0: they can go away?
1: I do indeed. I do indeed. First off, I point out to people there are three distinct views of Islam, and I need to know your point of view, and I'm going to give you mine. There was a day in Medina in which Muhammad executed 800 male Jews, enslaved the children, and sold the women as slaves wholesale. There are three views of this. The view that I have is this was evil. That's the Kafir-centric view. There's a second view, which is the view of Islam, and it is triumphant. The perfidious Jews were destroyed. It was a day of glory and power for Islam. And there's a third view, the apologist. Well, that was then. This is now. Christians have done worse. We don't need to dwell on the negative. We need The Crusades. The Crusades. Oh, the Crusades. I forgot about the Crusades. Yes. So, therefore, there are three points of view. I am distinctly of the Kafir-centric point of view. When i already at this point, when you're dealing with people who've done these arguments before, you can see the wheels come off the car because this is nothing. This is like, what is this guy? What? When you talk with a Muslim and you tell him that 51% of the trilogy is about the Kafir, he doesn't know a squat about this. He never thought about it. So I say to them also, so you're saying that I can't understand the Quran? Let me ask you some questions about the Quran. Is it universal? Well, yes, it is. Does it apply to all humanity? Yes, it does. So you're telling me that a book that applies to me, I can't understand even though it's about me? Right. Interesting. If that's true in general, it's true in specific. I challenge you to show me the verse the hadith and the paragraph in the sir that I cannot understand. Sir, step forward. Show these to me because I say they're not there. Well, they
0: they, 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 they they could use the dualistic logic that we mentioned earlier, which is to both say at the same time, right? Quantum physics, to both say that it is temporarily contextual and it is universal and time-invariant. Both can <laughs> hold true. So, so they're, they're not lying, right?
1: Uh, go ahead. But anyway, I, ch- I always challenge them, show me the verse I cannot understand. Right. And they're clueless. Right. I mean, they don't have it. They're just mouthing. I find that the apologists from the West who try to debate with me, they're really weak. Right. I mean, they're pathetic.
0: Well, I uh, think, but I
1: think Some that, are better Muslim, brotherhood yeah. types. They're better at their arguments. But even when I roll out the statistical work, they're like, huh?
0: Right. Now, what do you tell people? So there's, I call it sort of the inf- infinite loop of delegitimization strategy. So they'll start by, and when I say they, I'm talking now about guys who are serving as the classic apologists. Uh, They start by asking you questions. uh, And if you don't answer any one of them correctly, then you're no longer a valid critic or messenger for that particular endeavor. So we can start off with, uh, well, do you speak Arabic? Now, in my case, I would say yes. That's my mother tongue. Oh, geez, I can't get you on that one. But, but, you, but, but you haven't grown up. You're, you're from Canada. You haven't. No, no. actually, I grew up in Lebanon. Okay, damn, I can't get you on that one. So now we keep going down. Uh, have you studied at Al-Azhar University, right? Sort of the, the, the Mecca, forgive the pun, of uh, Sunni Islamic uh, you know, theological studies. Well, if I say no to that one, ah, there you go. But we could keep going back to, are you one of the faithful companions of Muhammad? Well, (laughs) no, I'm not, because I live in the 21st century. There you go. So you can't understand the subtlety of the time period. You can't understand Quranic Arabic philology. And therefore, this negates you as a serious uh, uh, commentator on this issue. So how do you get around that? I mean, obviously, it's duplicitous. It's idiotic as a strategy. But yet, it's a very powerful one. How do you deal with
1: that type of
0: line of arguments?
1: Well, first off, I always like to ask let me ask you a personal question, sir. Have you read all the Quran? I've never met one that did, that gives these arguments. Have you read all of the Sirah? Have you read all of the Hadith? And have you read all of the Reliance of the Traveler? That is, I'm already pushing back because they've never read any of this stuff. Even if you're dealing with a Muslim, no Muslim has ever read all of Bukhari. Get out of here. 7,000? I have. (laughs)
0: by the way, just for people to understand uh, since some may not know what we're talking about Reliance of the Traveler is sort of the definitive uh, treatise on Sharia law Uh, and so maybe that's a nice segue to turn to next Uh, you often hear amongst uh, typically uh, sort of westernized imams and the one that comes to mind in my case is uh, Imam Raouf who was the so-called ground zero mosque guy, he was doing the rounds on all of the American stations, saying, I mean, are you kidding me, Sharia is almost indistinguishable from the American Constitution. I mean, you can't tell. If you put the two together, you're at a <laughs> loss to know which is which. Which, I mean, is really, it's just an astonishing statement because it's almost impossible to create two treaties of legal codes that are any more different from one another. Yet he's able to go on CNN and say, are you kidding me, it's identical and Either he doesn't get the blowback because people are afraid to give the blowback, or they're frankly ignorant of it, and so they assume this guy is telling the truth. So, why don't you clarify, us for, clarify for us how overlapping is Sharia with the American Constitution?
1: Well, they both involve ink on paper. <laughs> That's it, it ends there. It ends there. <laughs> I mean, one of the when I first started, I did my study at home after 9 11. And then after three years' time, I had written a Quran, a Sirah, and a Hadith, all easy to understand. Or though I could put it, they will let you understand the original work. So I started dealing with out there in the public marketplace of ideas. I dealt with anyone who would debate with me, and I was stunned. I mean, I knew about Takiyah, sacred deception. I knew that Muhammad advised deception. But when you're sitting there looking into the eyes of this Muslim, and he just looks at you straight in the eye and lies to you, like, Oh my word! He just lied to me, and he has a straight face.
0: Right? Like you think he's 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 genuinely he's willfully doing so rather than coming from a position of ignorance, where he doesn't necessarily know what's in his holy text, right? I mean, tons of Jews don't know what's in the Old Testament. Tons of Christians haven't read anything from the Old or New Testament. So could a lot of the folks who are challenging you be doing so not necessarily from a position of duplicity? It's because, you know, they know a few things, right? I mean, they're Muslim by name, just like many of us are Jewish by name or Christian. We're born into the religious heritage that we're born into, and we know a few things. There is a god he's nice and treat people nicely and therefore that's what i infuse into my identity as a muslim and therefore when he's interacting with you he's not necessarily trying to lie to you he's genuinely ignorant of those truths are there
1: a lot of those or do you think many of them are actually willfully duplicitous those that's the majority of the muslims i find that they know astoundingly little about islam right and indeed when you study the sharia it says don't ask difficult questions right I mean, and by the way, that one right there just immediately grinds my gears. As a scientist, I go, don't ask difficult questions. Right. What other kind of great questions are there?
0: Right, right, right. So, well, actually, that was one of the, you know, when I sort of, uh, somebody asked me, you know, when, when, when was the epiphany for you in terms of, uh, being turned off by religion and the sort of the earliest retrievable memory that I can think of from my childhood growing up in Lebanon Going to the synagogue with my uh, parents is I would ask what yeah you know, I don't know how old I was maybe five six seven and it you know There are rituals that you do now you stand up now you you dance to the left now you dance to the right Whatever it is that you do and I would ask you know, why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? And then my, the answer would be just shh, you know be quiet and do And I guess I was destined to become a scientist because that really pissed me off. I hated that answer. (laughs) I mean, there's gotta you gotta give me something here. Even as a six, seven year old child, you know, uh, engage my intellect. And so, right, I think that was sort of the starting point. Maybe also because I had a non-conformist streak in me. I didn't like to be told what to do. Uh, It just didn't feel right. Uh, So there you go. So I think this idea of don't question is a wonderful doctrine to have because the greatest danger to a religion is to put it under the light of questioning right
1: that's what i say let me go back one just one sure. notch you're talking about does the muslim know the actually what he's talking about when i'm debating with andram chowdhury from england oh yes a radical guy he knows what he's talking
0: about yeah yes right he yes. knows what he's talking
1: about yes. for those of you who don't for those of you who
0: don't know uh he's a very radical guy who i think are there now uh, some procedures to put him in prison, or, or they've I, think, some, you know,
1: yeah. he, he, I, I believe he is an English convert to Islam. I don't know that to be true. Okay. Uh, actually, he's. I've told him one time in a debate, I said, you know, Andram, I kind of like you in a strange way. You know, all the other Muslims I deal with will lie to me about difficult issues, but you know, you just state, straight, state them straight up, man, all that he, jihad he, stuff. He, you don't, he, and he, he didn't know what to do with the comment. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he is almost
0: non-Machiavellian in his honesty, right? He tells yes. it like it is. There is no sugar coating. There is no... <laughs> yeah. that, that is very true.
1: Uh, I, think, I think that the police and politicians have actually said, you know, if he believes in what he says is true, I don't think we need him in our country.
0: <laughs> so uh, so, now, do you, so if, if
1: the majority
0: of, whether they be Muslims or Christians or any other faith, uh, are actually adherents to that religion, more by tradition, more by accidental birth, not because they actually know the text. So might a strategy be to try to resolve some of the the grand problems that we're facing today simply be to ask people to spend the necessary time to familiarize themselves With their religious texts and then allow them to come to whatever conclusion that they want to come to in other words they don't have to believe what bill warner's analysis is despite the fact that it is rigorous and it applies a scientific method why don't you meaning not you the person in question why don't you simply promise that you will dedicate the necessary time the one week two weeks three weeks to actually learn those texts rather than relying on george bush telling us what islam is or barack obama telling us what islam is why don't i just spend the time to find out what islam is and maybe i will find out that barack obama and george bush are exactly right or maybe i'll find out that they're not right but i think the problem is that most people frankly are cognitive misers right they're they're they're, (laughs) they're intellectually lazy so I'd rather just hear the one sentence from Obama or Bush that confirms to me that all will be good. That's what I call the ostrich brigade, right? It's right. the guys who put their head in the sand. and ho- right. So, I mean, is that ultimately the problem? It's a war of information, and if you get people to consume the
1: information, things will get better? I find that in almost every case. Uh, let me give you an example. I'm talking to Christians about how to convert Muslims. I say... You need to understand when you preach Jesus and the Gospels, you're drawing water from a poisoned well. What you want to do is to teach them about Muhammad. What you want to do is to teach them about Allah. That is the way you change them, is you teach them what they're supposed to believe. Right. And I know of uh, one minister who's a former Muslim who's a, a preacher in northern Iraq. And he says, I convert roughly 200 Muslims every six months. And what do I do to them? I asked ask them the question, do you like Islamic State? You don't? Well, let me show you how Islamic State is pure Muhammad. Right. Is this who you want for your prophet? So I find that the answer for the Muslim and the apologist and for the non-Muslim or the kafir is to know Muhammad. Right. So when somebody says to me, well, I know this Muslim, and he says, la, 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 I say, stop right there. Right. I know a Muslim whose name is Muhammad, and if you agree with him, you're right, and if you don't agree with him, you're wrong. So let's skip your friend and deal with Muhammad,
0: But you know what, that, that you're exactly right, and I've written about this, but I think people you know, navigate through the world through the social interactions that they have, right? Their personal anecdotes is what shapes their worldview, right? And therefore, if I can go through my memory and think of 30 Muslims whom I've interacted with in my life, all of whom are lovely, peaceful, kind, secular, liberal, then that is going to carry a lot more weight In shaping what I consider to be a Muslim than reading some abstract book that I don't have time for. And I think therein lies the main problem, right? Most people are decent people. So they turn to their, you know, their personal histories. Their personal histories is that if you take a random sample of Muslims, most are gonna be nice, genuine, lovely people, just like the Hindu and the non-believer and the Jew. And therefore, that's what I'm going to rely on in my conversation on Islam. I don't care about your ha- quote from the Hadith. That you know, doesn't apply anymore. But Ahmed, my current friend, he's the real depiction of Islam. And I think until we're able to sort of get over this disconnect between you know, criticizing or using individual people as the model of the religion versus the actual text, we're never going to be able to, to have an open conversation about this, right?
1: I, I agree with you totally. But I do go further ahead and say okay, you like to talk about your nice Muslim friend at work. How come you don't talk about uh, Abu Bakr, the caliph of Islamic State? Because oh, he's, oh. no,
0: he's no true Muslim. That's the, the no true Scotsman uh, fallacy, uh, right? Okay. He, so he, I- he is a fake, right? Uh, uh, Bin Laden, I've actually written about this, right? I've had conversations with, you know, hardcore, serious, you know, Muslim guys who know their stuff. Every single quote that I come up with from the most serious Islamic scholars, the rebuttal is always, but he's no true Muslim, right? So I could take Yusuf al karadawi right? The most known Sunni Islamic cleric from Al-Azhar University whose show is shown to 60 million Muslims, who's the spiritual leader of the Muslim
1: Brotherhood. Guess what, Bill? He's no true Muslim. <laughs> well, I'm not sure what to do with that, other than to <laughs> point out they're inconsistent. And, and what is your criteria for choosing a true Muslim? Right. You see, I have a criteria for choosing Muslims, and it's not my personal affection. My criteria for choosing a Muslim is the Sunnah of Muhammad and the Quran. So that's my, if you say a Muslim is good, bad, or indifferent, I say, how does he measure on this scale? And the scale is Muhammad. Right. So I have a rational reason for explaining to you why I believe this, and yours is one of affection right. and right. fear. Right. So I try to deal with that. And I also, I mean, I also don't try to drive it home too hard when I'm dealing with, apologist for Islam but I do try to create some doubt within them and I point out to them I can explain everything about Islam the good Muslim and the bad Muslim or as you call them the bad Muslim and you can only explain yours is like well they're not real right so actually your intellectual argument is on sort of a weak basis right right
0: now given the fact that you know you you come from an academic background you're using sort of a dispassionate methodology to, to analyze this stuff does that in a sense protect you from some of the vitriol that other people in this space who may not have your profile for example sam harris who's obviously a highly respected intellectual uh you know who has a phd in neuroscience uh you know will receive tons of blowback uh because of his mode of delivery which sometimes can go awry from the perspective of the ears of those who wish to you know to to criticize him now in your case i get the feeling that you're even though you're taking on some very serious issues and coming to some, quote, problematic conclusions, you're not as exposed to some of that vitriol. Is that correct?
1: That is correct.
0: Now, why? Now, what, what, how do you explain that? Is it, is it what I said, basically?
1: Well, first off, when I talk, I never raise my voice. Right. I probably raise my voice more talking to you than I do in delivering a talk to, uh, to an audience.
0: That's just your affection towards me coming out.
1: Well... I can sort of just, I don't have to put the, the corset on. I can just, whatever. Okay. When I'm in front of an audience, I'm on a high wire I'm, and I don't have a net. If I'm being interviewed on uh, Czech television, I've, first off, I've learned a lot from being on video. And that is, if you're pleasant and have a relaxed face, it is amazing what you can say. Right. If you just don't raise your voice. And the other is, when I appear in public, I normally have a bow tie on. And I wear a bow tie, as I explained to my granddaughter, for a simple reason. <clears throat> I wear glasses with heavier frames and a bow tie. I look like a geek. <laughs> so that,
0: so you engage in self emasculization
1: Yes, because geeks <laughs> and nerds are harmless. And they can be smart, but they're harmless. Right, right. So therefore, I, this is an intellectual disguise I wear. All right? I, I, I wouldn't wear an, a, a rebel flag T-shirt. So I look like an egghead, and I speak softly, and I speak rationally, and I smile a lot. It is amazing how much you can get by with that. Right. And also, I never insult. If I'm dealing with a Muslim, right. I never insult them. I never insult anybody. Now, I've been right. insulted a lot, right. but I never return fire.
0: Have you ever <laughs> had any physical threats? for your People work? ask
1: me that all the time. I have a talk that's on YouTube called Why We Are Afraid, and the reason it got that title was the three most common questions I'm asked are Is Obama Muslim? Uh, is Obama Muslim? Oh, oh, what's the difference between Sunni and Shia? And aren't you afraid? So I've learned that most people are afraid of dealing with the question. If you ask me that question, there's a reason for it. Right. So, and, and by the way, yes, and I reply to my audience if I'm asked that in public, aren't you afraid? I go, Well, of course I'm afraid. Do I look like a damn fool? <laughs> Right. But I do what I need to do, and so. but I'm trying to be low-key about it. I try to be as pleasant as possible. Now, that pleasantness does not extend to not intellectually contradicting you on what you say. Right. Right. I'm very aggressive intellectually, but I'm not aggressive emotionally. Right. Does that make sense?
0: No, it does, because I think oftentimes people will respond to the cosmetic cues rather than to the substance. So I think you're exactly right. If, you're, if you speak in a very you know, forceful style then somebody might dig in their defenses, not necessarily because of what you said, but for how you've said it. And so the fact that you've got sort of this disarming st- personal style, I think definitely helps your cause. I've got, I think, two more questions, and I know you're, you're on a tight schedule, so then we, we can wrap it up. Uh, my next question to you is the following. There, there are several people in this space, you know, in this sort of debate on Islam, Uh, that have come up recently, you know, high-profile people who are offering, you know, different optimism when it comes to the possibility of a Muslim reformation. The idea being, of course, that the other Abrahamic religions have gone through reformation, Islam hasn't, and if we can find the doctrinal path to lead us to a reformation, then things can be well because we could modernize islam to be compatible with western secular values blah 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 what's your position on that is this uh, a completely useless initiative if yes then what do we do uh, if no how do we go about it
1: well first off we need to examine the word reform right reform means to basically go back to the roots of the foundation and that's what happened in christianity because that the reformation of christianity The Catholic Church had drifted off into what could only be called magical thinking, and that's a kind term for it. There have been already, we need to notice two things about this talk about reformation. Number one, it comes mostly from the Kafir, not from the Muslims. They don't need to reform because they're they're happy. The other is we've already had reformations. I give you the Taliban, I give you Al-Qaeda, I give you Islamic State. Those are, read carefully what Islamic State puts out. They are clearly a Reformation movement. Right. They insist upon the fact that they're a Reformation movement. One of the things about Islamic State is, and I sort of grade their papers with every new issue. First off, they get an A-plus in Islamic doctrine. Right. Everything they say is impeccably correct and almost tediously listed. I mean, there's, there's somewhat of a Talmudic approach to these people, right. and they say, it's this, it's this, sex slaves. Well, here we go, here's all the hadith about sex slaves, and they pointed out something that I hadn't noticed. There was only one companion of Muhammad who didn't have a sex slave. Okay. So they are reforming Islam, and they are insistent upon this. They're insistent upon and everything they say, that they're supposed to have a caliph. That's true. So it ha- we already have reformation. And I want you to notice something here. It is mostly the non-Muslim who calls out for the reformation. Why should Muslims want to reform? It's working like a watch. It's been working for 1400 years and the process of Islamification of the world has never been going faster. Well, I guess,
0: well, you're right, but there are some secular Muslim voices who recognize genuinely, honestly, and I know many of them and I've had many of them on my show. Uh, Either they now consider themselves ex-Muslims or they still find a way to navigate through what to me strikes me as a contradiction, that they want to modernize Islam, yet they're still practicing Islam. So it's unclear which parts they choose to ignore or go by. But there are genuine folks who are Muslim who say, look, we have to reform our faith. So, so I, so, I'm not, I'm, so I, so in other words, I would, I would take, I would disagree with you that it's largely driven by the kafir. I think there are genuine Muslim voices that are trying to do it. My perspective is that you're going to have to come up with infinite number of mental gymnastics for each of the possible problematic passages, and I'm not sure that it could be done. Whereas somebody like uh, Majid Nawaz, whom you might know, he's maybe the the most famous of the new wave of reformers. He's a British Muslim guy who used to be an Islamist. Uh, He holds much greater hope about the possibility of of reforming the doctrines. Do you think that you can reform the doctrines? I mean, is there a magic wand, doctrinally speaking, that allows one to do that?
1: Let's address two issues. Okay. The first issue is, let's look at the text. The Quran is perfect, down to the letter and the punctuation. It is universal. It is eternal. And it is complete okay there you go. how does one if you improve it it was already perfect right okay and you say well I don't want to include this part right here but it's complete it's eternal so this process of doing this is very peculiar to me and so and now let's go to the Sirah of Muhammad that's already it's a done deal the hadith they're all done deals the 91 verses in the Quran which say Muhammad is the perfect example, they don't say the edited Muhammad is the perfect right. example. They say Muhammad is the perfect example. And so why would you want to deny something that your prophet Muhammad said was true? Right. Why, why are you doing that? And do you ever present these lectures down at your own mosque, or do you only present these lectures in front of kafirs?
0: Right. So you're not, you're not holding out hope for this reformation. So then where do we go from here? If, if the doctrines can never be changed uh what do we do what what's what's the solution
1: well we need both knowledge and courage for instance i find that what you want to do is to engage muslims in what they believe and engage them factually because we need to help them out as well you have to understand that there are people who are trapped inside of islam as well as those who want to reform it so i'm all for the public marketplace of ideas that is i'm for open free debate because I think that what will happen is if we can ever, in an arena of open free debate, Islam cannot sustain itself. It is not given to logical thought. In the end, you just have to be overpowered. Right. So I'm, I'm, for, I'm, big, I'm big for debate. I'm big for discussion. Because I think that, look, I'll come back to it. I'm trained as a scientist. I like being a scientist. And I think that logic can prevail. And I want to see it. We have to understand something. We have never lived in a society, in ever in human history, that understands Islam. The explanation and knowledge of Islam has always been with experts. Right. What I want to do is to, to, to democratize this issue such that a, a 14-year-old kafir child in high school can talk to his 14-year-old Muslim brother and ask him difficult questions. Not mean, snarky questions, but make it so, like, I don't understand this. Right. So, in some way, I'm a hopeless fool and that I believe that truth can prevail and that logic is supreme from your lips to the
0: cosmos's ear. Uh, last <laughs> last question for you. Uh, I receive a lot of uh, messages, innumerable messages from all sorts of folks telling me, look, we'd like to contribute to the discussion. We'd like to the- contribute to the battle of ideas uh, because they, they really feel helpless in that they, yes, they could consume information. They can go to Bill Warner's website and read about his analyses, and then they could go to an Islamic website and read about their perspective. So in that sense, they are engaged, but they don't necessarily know what to do next, other than being passive consumers of information, which is an important element. They don't know what else to do. Do you have any strategies or any recommendations that you could offer people who wish to contribute in their own small ways to the debate, to
1: the discussion, to this issue? Actually, I do. Okay, go for it. I have been, for 14 years, I've been educating, <clears throat> this sounds for, uh, too big to state, but I've been educating people all around the world about Islam. And we have now reached the critical threshold of not what is the nature of Islam, but what are we going to do about this? So I have, this is, I'm involved in my third attempt, and I think I'm close to success this time, to create something, a web page called Kafir Network, actually KNET.
0: Knet.
1: Okay. And Knet. And the purpose of Knet is to answer the question what can I do? Okay. That is I've already leveraged up to the point where I want to do something. This is a project oriented web base. It's that is it's not about sending me emails and it's not about can you believe Obama said this. This is about there this is a project based website. So if you want if you're a Christian and you want to work with conversion of Muslims here's how you do it. Or if you're a secularist and you want to still deal with the question of Islam, here's ways that you can do it. For instance, I argue that one of the projects that those who oppose Islam should do is to be involved with refugee resettlement. Why is it that in America we bring Muslims in by the boatload or the plane load, but we don't bring Christians in? Right. So if you could bring about standing up to bring in Christian refugees in some strange way, you're helping your own civilization and opposing Islam. So what I want to do is, oh, here's an example. I've got a brochure called Voices for the Voiceless that does not mention Islam and does not mention Muslims. There's a process which I call the Brochure Brigade in which every time there's a public meeting that involves Islam, three or four people show up and all they do is hand out brochures about the greatest human rights crime in the world today, which is the persecuted religious minorities. Remember, it doesn't mention Muslim, it doesn't mention Islam. But it raises a question. So what we will have on this website are projects. You can talk to other people who are doing this. You can, for instance, you can have a library project in which you go to the libraries that are within your prevail and say, look, here's a list of books we're spending tax money on. I want to see these books in our library. So it's a project-based business. It is not explaining to you the Quran. So now the trouble with this here is I'm now selling what used to be called vaporware. That is, this site is under development. But I've already screwed it up on three of them. And I think this time I'm getting it right. Keep your fingers
0: crossed. Well, I, I think I, the way I like to end it is to say, look, uh, it's important for people when they're listening to you that they recognize that you're not. And I, if I could take the liberty to speak for you, uh, you're not attacking people. You, oh. you are But, but that's, it's so important to keep repeating. I mean, I repeat, I repeat this ad nauseum. To the point where I wonder whether I should be still repeating it, but I think it it is always important to repeat because so many people will be triggered, if you'd like, by this inability to distinguish between criticism of individuals and criticism of an ideology, right? Uh, Whether Islam is compatible or specific doctrines of Islam are compatible with Western secular, you know, liberal democracies is something that we could discuss and whichever conclusion that we arrive to says nothing about our personal affection and the rights that we believe individual Muslims should hold just like everybody else. It should be a given that that's a true statement, but regrettably, too often in the public discourse, The minute that you say something against Islam, that means you're hating against Muslims and there is no such confusion, right? You don't have, I know you, I think I've gotten to know you well, I don't detect any rancor in your heart, right? There is no hatred. You are talking about an ideology and whether that ideology is consistent with the type of liberal society that we've created here. If yes, great. If no, this is how I'm going to tell you that it's not consistent. So you are really a guy who is talking about ideas rather than stirring up any hatred towards any individuals. Have I, have I summarized your heart well?
1: You have, and I even have a slide when I give a lecture on statistical Islam <clears throat> in which I show <clears throat> excuse me, the three books, the Quran, the Sarah the Hadith. And I say, this is what I discuss. The next slide shows a woman in a niqab with a mask on. And I say, this is a Muslim. Now, Right next to it is a picture of these three books. These are books. I don't discuss Muslims, I discuss these books and the ideas in them. And that seems childish that I have to show them a picture of a Muslim and a picture of the books, but I finally realized, no, I need to show them the picture of the books and the picture of the person. I don't know who this woman is, I'm not attacking her.
0: And that's exactly what Ben Affleck did when he appeared famously with Bill Maher Maher on, uh, you know, with Sam Harris, where Sam Harris starts to, you know, give some, you know, very clear facts that could be verifiable. Uh, regarding Islam, and then the other guy says, no, you're being gross, you're being racist, right? Uh, So, you know, we have to get rid of this instinctual reflex, which comes from a decent place, because people rightfully don't want hate to propagate, right? So they don't want Muslims to be targeted as individuals. But hey, their doctrine, the doctrine that they subscribe to, is perfectly fair game, as is communism, as is socialism, as is Judaism, as is anything, right? As scientists, we, we submit a paper to a journal expecting that it's going to be butchered and sliced up by the reviewers. That's how science operates. So why is it that my work, after I've, I've put three, four years of working on a project, could be trash, could be rejected by a journal. I could spend years working on something for it to be clobbered. But yet there is an ideology that is completely untouchable because it would be offensive to talk about it. No, that's offensive. No ideology is off limits. And the sooner that people know this,
1: uh, the safer the world will be, right? It is. And I'll add one more thing. Now, as an intellectual, I find the study of Islam intriguing. Right. That is, it's, not just, now it's difficult at first. It used to be there was an excuse you could make. Well, it's too hard. No longer. Quran, Sira, Hadith, Sharia—all of these have been easy to understand. So I would encourage people not only to study this material, not only because it's useful politically, but it's just interesting. Right. So I—I mean, I'm an egghead. I'm an intellectual. I admit it. And I call other intellectuals like you and me to like come. Let us reason together. That's what I say. Beautiful. It's been said better earlier, but
0: (laughs) beautiful. Thank you. So any uh, now, I know that on your website you've got. You know copies of your book so i'll probably put a site i mean mm-hmm. the address to your website is there anything else do you have a twitter pay, a twitter account that you'd like to promote or is that should i just put up your
1: uh, you can put the web page and now then let me quickly here click through and i, I never can remember what my facebook page is done done here i'm going to my facebook page just so you can uh it's bill warner author perfect okay i'll anyways i'll find it i'll put it up hey bill
0: Stay on the stay on the line. Uh, we're going to end the conversation here. Thank you so much for coming on. I
1: hope people enjoyed our conversation. Talk to you soon, buddy. Great, I've enjoyed it. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.